If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When men were fighting and dying in France and Belgium, why wasn't football banned on the home front? Did the First World War slow down the commercialisation of the sport? And why did the number of red cards surge between 1914 and 1918? These are just some of the questions considered by Alexander Jackson in his book, Football's Great War. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Alexander considers how the First World War altered the trajectory of England's national game. Alexander, your new book, Football's Great War, tells the story of football on the home front during the First World War. Now, there's been a lot written over the decades about football on the Western Front, thanks, I guess, largely to the, the games that were played during the Christmas truce of 1914. But why do you think that the story of football specifically on the home front is one that deserves to be told? Well, partly, uh, I would argue, because of the significance that football had both then and now, uh, it's arguably sort of uh, the national pastime as one of the most popular both participation and spectator sports. Uh, and also partly because that home front story has been overlooked. As you say, it's been sort of the concentration on the Christmas truce, uh, debated in some ways uh, quite frequently, uh, and also 
the role of uh, football uh, in incidents such as the the Surrey's uh, and the Irish Rifle, uh, London Irish kicking footballs ahead of them uh, uh, during battles in 1915 and 1916. It's about what's happening on the home front as well. And so within that story, football tends to have been sort of passed over. There's an idea that sort of football comes to an end uh, in 1915 uh, and that there's not much after that apart from football played by women. And so what I've tried to explore in the show is that how football does continue in many different ways, shapes and forms and continues to be really important and perhaps arguably becomes even more important to some people during the war. Sure. Now, just to set the scene a little bit, can you... Tell us a little bit about what football was like in Britain on the outbreak of war. Um, how was it organised and, and, and how popular was it among the, you know, the wider population? Well, what, what's nice in the book is that when I was looking into the collections in the National Football Museum, is that we have a lovely little um, uh, collection material to do with a banquet that the FA hosted in 1913. Uh, and that was to celebrate 50 years of the Football Association being founded. So back in the 1860s, football starts off, at least in terms of the FA's, organi- that organisation, it's essentially an elite game for upper-class, middle-class amateurs. Uh, but by 1913, it's become a mass spectator sport. It's commercialised. Uh, there are over uh, several hundred professional and semi-professional teams. There's about seven, seven, five to 7,000 professional and uh, semi-professional players several hundred thousand amateur players. This is a huge game that has significance in people's lives. Uh, and arguably, it's the, the modern game has come into existence by then we're familiar with. So if you look at something like the Football League, uh, the top 40 teams in the two divisions there uh, have a lot of the names we're familiar with today, Manchester United. A relatively recently formed Chelsea, uh, formed in 1905, has just come into existence and has a reputation as being a big spending uh, club uh, right from the start, which is Something's interesting. Something's never changed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, they're, they're, and in some ways, some other things don't change. There's issues around the um, uh, concerns about, is it overly commercialised? Are players paid too much? Are transfer fees too big? I mean, uh, just before the, the war starts, I think the record goes up to over two thousand, near to three thousand pounds for a single player. It's like, and obviously at the time they're debating it, like, is this too much? They're also debating, is it too much of a, a, is it game too focused on professional approaches in terms of are results more important than fair play? Is their spectators' love of a win more important than applauding and appreciating good play by both sides? And what I actually have there is essentially this sort of uh, clash between the growing commercialization and the logic of commercialization of the game. And and the amateur ethos, amateur uh, ideas that uh, where the game started. And a lot of the people who administer and run the game within the FA and Football League do subscribe quite strongly to certain notions of amateurism. Uh, and this has an important impact when the war does come along in terms of how the, the uh, different people within football respond to that crisis when it comes. Yeah, so can you elaborate on that a little bit? When I was reading your book, I was a little bit surprised by this, about this controversy that kind of raised about, you know, the status of professional and amateur players. I mean, I knew that this existed in cricket. It's quite quite famously exists in cricket. I didn't realise that this distinction between 
amateur players and professional players was such an, an important factor in football as well. So when organised association football starts to emerge in the 1860s and 70s, you have everyone's an amateur. It's played mainly by men who can afford to take time off to play, basically. Uh, and then when you get into the 1880s, uh, you have growing working class involvement. Um, and then that means that uh, working class men need to have time off from work to if they're going to play. Uh, that is very tricky. Then uh, essentially you need to have some of your time covered. And so the idea of being paid for played uh, emerges. Uh, and in the 1880s, professionalism is uh, legalised after some considerable debate. Uh, uh, but it's also very tightly controlled. So uh, it's middle-class administrators at the Football League or the Football Association who keep a very tight control of that professionalism. And it's very much reflects the wider society. It's very much, a, and they use this language specifically at the time, masters and servants. Players are the servants of their direct of the of their masters who run the clubs. Uh, so it is tightly controlled. Players are meant to know their place. At the same time, you have emerging trade unionism. Uh, so there's threats of strikes around issues around um, pay and contracts in the 1900s because players' pay is capped. It's Initially, it's free, and then in the 1900s, it's capped with maximum wages. And players' contracts are very tightly controlled, so clubs have a great amount of control about when a player can move and where he can move uh, in that system. Uh, and they also, in terms of the wider amateur game, it's quite tightly controlled of whether you are amateur or professional. So there are strict, relatively strict guidelines about when you can or can't take uh, financial recompense uh, for playing. Once you, to be a professional, you have to sign the forms and make that cross that that barrier. And for some middle class amateurs um, who play within the game, that is a something they don't want to do. You almost give up a bit of your sort of caste background, so to speak, if you turn professional, because you are associating with essentially working class men, particularly. At the same time, some middle class people are quite happy to 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 accept money uh, to play. They don't see anything wrong with that. So, how does the war change all this then? It, well, what you have is sort of when the war starts is um, there is a big debate about whether football should go ahead or not uh, uh, as a fundamental issue. Uh, and so what you have to a certain degree with, um, for example, an amateur sport like rugby union, where players are not paid for play, uh, they... Uh, they have it is essentially sort of it is just an amateur recreation, even though there is large amounts of money within when games are held. So basically, and they also rugby union is a very middle class game. It's got very strong connections with the public schools. To them, sports war is almost a continuation of sport in the sense of the public school ethos around what our game is meant for. They're meant to prepare you for the biggest struggle in life and and an imperial. Uh, uh, somewhat to extend Darwinian society of your outlook, like that there's a straight continuation. Uh, what you have in football is quite different. You've got both a amateur game uh, for grassroots amateurs that covers everything from Durham minors to Etonian schoolboys, uh, and then you have a professional game uh, that is a professional commercial, uh, it's a commercialised spectator sport that fits within the wider uh, Edwardian um, leisure entertainment industry. Uh, so on that one aspect, they're looking at football in a different way in terms of some of their players can join up and they are, men are encouraged to join up where possible, whether they're amateur or professionals. At the same time, there is an argument for 
if we shut down football, what is going to be the wider economic impact on those who can't volunteer? So though players are too old, the staff at clubs, the uh, uh, what will happen to them and their jobs and the, the industries they support? And what about the spectators? Can it, There is an early recognition that this is total war. It's going to involve the civilian population. And therefore, it how you support a civilian population that can't fight, but it's important to that war effort because it's men in factories producing the weapons, working on ships that are going to be sending materials across the sea. How do you support the civilian population and the realisation that you actually need some level of entertainment, relaxation, escape? Sure. So can we elaborate on that a little bit? Because that really came through in the book, that the intensity of the debate over whether football should continue while you know, thousands of soldiers are fighting and dying on the front. And I just wanted to bring up a quite heart-rending anecdote that you cite in the book of the Bradford Park Avenue manager, Tom Maley, whose son had recently been killed in a trench raid. And you write that he, he was asking, why should hard-working people, sober and industrious, be deprived of their only recreation on a Saturday afternoon? So, yeah, so can you just elaborate a bit on on how intense this debate was, how much pushback was there on the idea of football continuing while the war was being being fought? Well, at the start, at the start of as the war uh, as war breaks out, there's there are big initial suggestions of like you know should it go ahead or not? Some sports shut down, and then in the period afterwards, uh, there's initial recognition from football like right, we're going to do this and. Um, most people within the football community get with it or are in support of it. Some are not from the start. There is a um, Throughout, there's a range of different opinions. Uh, and then as the fighting gets more intense in sort of, uh, uh, in the, sort of the autumn of 1914, that debate becomes more, more, uh, becomes more fierce and the criticisms levelled at football become very explicit in terms of the, you know, if you are continuing to play and this is not patriotic, you're a coward if you're playing as a player, you know, not joining up like other men are. Uh, and and it gets quite vitriolic. There's a lot of sort of propaganda going backwards and forwards on both sides. Um, and what's interesting is actually, I think sometimes in some of the literature, it's presented essentially as sort of the anti-football argument, winning or being sort of uh, more successful. I think from looking through the football uh, uh, press, and you kind of get a sense of actually these people are quite secure in they're fighting, pushing back against it, and they're very secure in their their own arguments they have for continuing. But what what is the what is the big challenge is by the end of the fourteen fifteen season is that crowds have dropped quite considerably. So there's a big commercial pressure as well, uh, and so that forces people to reconsider whether football can continue and in what shape or form. Um, so by that summer of 1915, by when where you mentioned Tom uh, Malley getting up to give that speech, that's in the context of uh, the football uh, bodies coming together and discussing about what, whether football can continue, uh, whether it's right to. And I think this is the interesting thing. At that point, people, what they decide to do is ban professionalism, or rather the, specifically the payment of players. Um, so you could... From 1915 to 1918, players could not be paid. But you, say, if you were a club director, you could still potentially receive dividends. Uh, or if you were a club manager, you'd be still paid to do your job. Uh, but what they also do then is decide to make football uh, fit to the war, to the wider sort of 
war uh, war effort, so to speak. So they cut out the payment to make it sustainable to a degree, uh, and then they organise it so it's more local and regional. So they cuts out things like excessive travel. Players have to have jobs, so they should be working towards the war effort, and they shouldn't be taking time off towards them. And so this is a, a an attempt to sort of adapt a bit to a degree within what is permissible in wartime society. Um, but it is, as you say with Tom Malley, it is about people filter this through their own individual experiences. So anyone who's, as we can imagine with the game in the last couple of years, anyone who's lost uh, a brother, a son, an uncle, uh, a nephew, that kind of, that filters how they view how appropriate football is uh, to a degree. But also, in some, as with Tom Malley, it reinforces that sense because for him, it really brings out the importance of football to other people and to himself as something where he can contribute to that wider wider war effort, however small he sees himself as part of that. Yeah. You said earlier that uh, Christ dropped off a little bit at the beginning of the war. I mean, is that something that continued throughout the conflict or did people gradually come back to the game as, as the war continued? It's a mixture, so uh, sort of, as with all these things with crowd attendances, there's like big headline figures. And so the big headline figure is that the crowds overall drop quite significantly, uh, which is not surprising because uh, your main uh, fan demographic in that period is like an adult male age between roughly about 18 and 40, which, fully enough, uh, they're in demand from another another area of uh, society. Um, uh, But not everyone can go, uh, and other men within that age range obviously still need to be uh, kept back in reserved occupations. Uh, So crowds drop through from down to about a sort of low in about 1915-16. But then actually what's quite interesting, even though you've got conscription and possibly arguably people being tired out by the war and football become more expensive, crowds start to rise back up towards the end of the war, which shows that in some ways people are even more keen, especially when they feel more comfortable with football as an acceptable pastime. And arguably I think in some ways once conscription is introduced, people are more happy to go to something like football where they won't be accused, uh, potentially picked out, like, uh, you know, and said like, well, you know, you're going to this this kind of sport. Uh, Why are you not at the front? Uh, It's a bit of a different dynamic from musicals, but there are some overlaps there. Um, So it shows that basically that football still has a, there are still several million people, spectators a season who attend games. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's only in football that that decision is made to force working class men to do something for free and it's seen as appropriate. Now, you you write that the newspaper editor, Alfred Martin, uh, declared that nothing would be quite so indecent as to find spectators losing their heads over any pastime when there are hundreds of bandaged soldiers to remind us of what is going on only a short distance away. I mean, did fans moderate their behaviour in wartime? Were, were they in any way less partisan than they would have been before the war? It, they, To a degree, they seem to have done so. Uh, there's another lovely quote by another one of uh, Alf Martin's um, uh, colleagues talking about going to the first game in the 1915-16 season. Because... At that point, it's this whole new football, players aren't being paid, and there are all debates about well, how will players take it seriously? What kind of football will we see? Will it be sort of like, you know, just like an amateur thing? Uh, and But he, he also talks about a spectator going along who used to sit very close to the... It's a Sheffield Wednesday season ticket holder who's 
clearly been sat next to this uh, the next to the writers for some time and they're like amazed because he turns up and he's like i think they say he's like he's not shouting at anyone he's not tra- shouting threats at the referee threatening threatening to hang him up at the end of the game and they're like may this continue but but to a certain degree after a little while as people become a bit more comfortable with it again you do see fans doing things like booing players getting on their backs uh, and they're also uh, one or two and this is not something that's new it happened pre-war but you do actually also have a very large riot uh, essentially after a part way through a very ill-tempered game between Sheffield Wednesday and Bradford City that involves several thousand fans getting onto the pitch with several hundred trying to get one of the Bradford players although interesting enough led by three sailors who have clearly not getting enough as, as it, the joke goes it's they're like fed up of waiting for the German Navy to come out to fight them uh, missed miss the Battle of Jutland and they're clearly looking for some alternative sort of uh, sort of combat so there's a there's a very interesting wide range um of spectator behaviour within that. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned just then that people wondered what football would look like. I mean, in terms of quality, the quality of the football they were they were watching, how was that impacted by so many players being away on the front fighting? What was the quality of the football like? Uh, the quality of the football, you sort of got an increase in two main areas. Uh, one is goals, because you, as you say, a lot of players have gone away. You've got a little disruption because quite a lot of players... Uh, move to different places because once they're not being played by their club they've got to find a job and so obviously some players stay where they're living they might have family but others return home they're like obviously quite young men quite a lot of them Uh, so they might return home and do the jobs they did before they became players so they go down the coal mines they work in factories Uh, so the task of a team manager is really complex it's like it's equivalent to sort of any sort of Saturday's Saturday amateur football manager who's had that struggle to get a squad together before a, a game on a Saturday so obviously levels of defensive coherency are down so goal rates rocket up quite high because very good players are often playing against makeshift defences uh, new players clubs are trying to find players all over the board so they're playing sometimes quite young teenagers um, there's a so yes yeah, so that's the kind of impact on there and then the other pact in terms of quality and it's a different sense is that you have a quite high rise in the number of dismissals because players are now not being paid, they have um, pre-war. If you obviously got sent off, you're not paid for several weeks. That's your week's wages. That's quite a big financial incentive it, it, when you're on a restricted wage. Uh, getting sent off is a big deal. Uh, once you're not being played, working class play professional players who are now playing as amateurs, but at sort of elite level still, uh, they kind of return a little bit, shall we say, to sort of the attitudes and practices <laughs> of which they grew up in. Which So if you're like, again, like sort of a, a Durham or a Northumberland coal miner, you don't always turn the other cheek. I think that's the way to put it. <laughs> and so you have quite a rise yeah. of not just, not single sending offs, but double sending offs because it's like, well, you you hacked me down on the wing. Whereas before pre-war, I'd go like, well, I'm not going to get you back because, you know, no, need to keep my turn per, don't want to lose my money. It's like, all right, mate, you started this. <laughs> retribution. Exactly. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, cases of retribution. There's referees also struggling with the game, uh, that side of the control. So in one, in a couple of cases, there's one actually case where a referee sends a player off uh, and then he seems to backtrack, presumably because he got like surrounded by people. The newspaper accounts on that are very interesting. They are very, very silent. It's only in the FA minutes that they say the referee did like you know, as admon- is being admonished for backtracking on his decision. Could you um, briefly introduce us to um, 
say a couple of players that really shone in this period, who really made their their name during during the war years. I mean, the sort of the team that really shines within English football uh, is Leeds City. Uh, and you'll note that the name is quite different because obviously we know now them today as Leeds United. And that's a story in itself because they were a, a very successful team during in the Midlands section. Uh, they essentially recruited quite well from um, players from uh, the northeast because those clubs down there had shut down at Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, partly through distance and partly because their directors took a very uh, sort of sort hardline approach to terms of like we shouldn't play football. They shut down. So those. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Players from those clubs were kind of not quite kicking their heels, but playing at lower level, semi-pro level uh, clubs. So Leeds City did quite well, recruited quite a number of these leading players. So players like Clem Stevenson, who was pre-war a young player at Aston Villa, but lived up in the northeast where he was from. He played for quite a number of seasons with Leeds City. After the war, he went on to become an absolute star player with um, uh, Huddersfield Town, won, uh, was part of their very successful side that won three back-to-back titles. Uh, so he's an example of someone who had a very quiet, you know, sort of good war, uh, played top-quality football, part of this Leeds side. It's interesting enough that while these players were very keen to come down to Leeds is because uh, they were actually being paid legal payments under the counter, uh, kind of what you would call back then boot money. Uh, and that was part of the challenges. You've got players who are not being paid to play, so and they're free to choose to a degree who they play for, some of its location, but then obviously clubs are competing with each other a little bit and Leeds didn't have too many local players to pick from and clearly decided that they would uh, sort of you know and the thing is at the time is that uh, the Chesterfield were also investigated for similar kind of things were actually banned during the war Leeds weren't caught out until after the war Um, so that's a sort of a good example of sort of some of the wider issues going on there. yeah yeah now you write that Queen's Park Rangers had to move out of their Park Royal ground in 1915 because it was turned into a, a vast munitions factory and Tottenham Hotspur fans were forced to travel to Clapton Orient and of all places Woodage Arsenal to support their team because White Hart Lane was re- requisitioned. Did did any clubs really struggle as a result of things like this during the war? Did any, did any virtually go out of business? Um... Out of the top, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember the exact stat, but roughly out of the the uh, what you have is the football league has forty teams in it, and then quite there's a bit of a regional feature to English football this time because the Southern League then was quite prominent, and that actually had a number of teams like Southampton, Crystal Palace, West Ham, which we're familiar with, obviously within the football league structure. Back then, they played for the Southern League, so out of about sixty clubs across those top sort of three divisions we roughly call it so to speak I think there's only one uh, that goes out of um, it completely out of existence in 1916 so most managed 
to continue and get through. Some do declare bankruptcy. So, for example, Norwich City, they're out on the they're out on the the edge. They're not part of organised. They're not part of the London uh, League, which is one of the three regional leagues. So they can't really play other teams on a commercial basis. So they play just military teams and local teams, but essentially they're racking up debts through rent and other things. So some clubs like them struggle, go bankrupt, but are reform, reformed. It's Croydon Common, that was the name I was trying to remember. So Croydon Common are sadly the only team to sort of go under, and it's partly because they have a loan that's called in by um, uh, by someone who lent it, uh, lent it to them. Um so, but other, other small teams, say like Berry, are a great example. It's obviously, and again, they're sort of familiar name that might be familiar to some people with their recent financial issues. Uh, Berry are like a sort of smaller team that struggle. They have debts pre-war. The war increases those debts, and they're forced to do things like selling. And they're not the only people to do this. They end up selling parts of the stands to make money. So, woods become quite like expensive and quite in demand by 1917 18. So they they auction off part of the stand, uh, and they also allow a, a local hotel uh, pub owner nearby to graze sheep on the pitch during the postseason, which I suppose is, I suppose might be considered a very clever way to avoid some work <laughs> keeping the grass down. I mean, that's true, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah I suppose. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. So so some clubs, it is very much about cutting back to the bones. Uh, on the flip side of it is that some clubs, it's a bit of a, for a smaller number of clubs, it's a bit of a boon period because with these regional leagues, some smaller teams that are outside the football league structure who play in some of the division leagues below so to speak they get to play against bigger teams so near where i live like rotherham county as it won that as it was then they had two clubs one shuts down during the war that's rotherham town and rotherham county continue so rotherham county are pre-fort pre-war would be playing like Sheffield United reserves and Wednesday reserves but they get to play their first team so it's a boom period they some of their crowds are quite big uh, a lot of some of their crowd their Rotherham fans travel to Sheffield for the away games because it's like wow it's great we're going to be like playing Wednesday at Hillsborough yeah, definitely yeah, going to go there club, yeah. yeah yeah so so they they during the war they're like adding embankment they're like piling, piling up the the soil to make the embankments bigger they're like sprucing up the ground uh, and stoke do very well out of the war because they'd gone from being bankrupt and kicked out of the league around 1908 uh, and they they come back in they do really well uh, and they're getting very big crowds partly because they've got quite a number of fans in reserved occupations nearby like coal miners industrial work uh, and that is a real sort of crowd numbers are affected by these changes in the wartime economies of towns and cities. Sure. So the war comes to an end in November 1918. What does football look like in the immediate aftermath of the conflict? Conflicts. I mean, had four years of fighting wet the public's appetite for more football? It definitely. Uh, and you see these debates during the war about like what will be will football be like after the war will there be an expansion and some people are a bit like oh perhaps football will find a place you know people put too much emphasis on pre-war but most sports journalists are sort of like going nah i don't see this i think people will be more keen to see sport uh being in the army uh, has exposed more men to sport as well which is an interesting argument i think there's some uh, there's some uh, validity to that that um, you're, especially for a lot of guys who get to play football in the army, they, you know, become involved in that sort of spectator culture sport of watching 
regiments and their units play. And so what you get after the First World War, very similar to what you have after the Second World War, is a very big spectator boom. Uh, And interestingly enough also, it's a spectator boom that takes in both men and women's football because you've had the rise of women's football during the First World War. And that sort of, some of those teams drop, women's teams drop away in 1919, but in 1920, the numbers are starting to go back up. And sometimes that's discussed as like the ban on women's football or FA affiliated clubs hosting women's football in 1921 is sometimes portrayed as women's football has become too popular. It's out like, out, you know, more popular than men's football. And actually what I found, I would argue, if you look at the statistics, is that there is a, it's an overall, big, just a big post-war boom, and it's both men and women's football. Right, takes them both, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, and that is fascinating. It's in a sense, it's a lost opportunity because clearly there was that spectator willingness to go and watch women's football for various different reasons with different levels of support. But um, it's definitely there. Uh, but then it drops off. As you get into the middle 20s, it obviously, it's again, it's linked into wider uh, wider economic issues. So once the depression starts hitting, uh, you, you have a definite downward decline in the in the 20s that then starts rising in the 30s again. And during your research for this book, I mean, how, if, if you could outline one thing, how did it change your opinion of football a century ago, if you could basically focus upon one factor that really took you by surprise that in the way in which football changed during these four years? So in some ways, it's a very interesting sort of like, what if? Because at the time they were saying like, well, should we even go back to professionals after the war? Should players still have jobs? There was There were discussions and how much that was just a bit of pie in the sky thinking by middle-class sports writers who were kind of hoping against hope that the onward march of commercialisation would stop or be changed or pushed back. It is open to open to debate, but it is very interesting that sort of essentially for four years you had this bigger ideological, it's an ideological decision because if you look at like the music hall or uh, many other sports, professional sports during the First World War, they still paid people to do that activity. It's only really in football where they made that big decision and it says something about that whole amateur hold, so to speak, uh, that amateur ethos idea. It, it's only in football that that, decision is made to force working class men to do something for free and it's seen as appropriate and it changes that whole dynamic of the way the game is 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 being viewed and played and participated in to a degree um and so the fact that that hasn't been really sort of explored more in the wider history of of English football and also the First World War I find quite interesting uh, and that's kind of why I've written the book in in a sense um, but but one can argue that in a sense it was it was only going to be that that period because the, the onward train throughout onwards has obviously been ever-growing commercialization. That was Alexander Jackson. Football's Great War, Association Football on the English Home Front is published by Pen and Sword. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt.